On the 11th of December 1998, NASA launched its Mars Climate Orbiter. Mission Control, we have liftoff. It was a robotic space probe intended to study the climate, atmosphere and surface changes on the Red Planet. It blasted off without issue and cruised the 669 million kilometres over the next nine months before beginning its orbital insertion. It was then that the orbiter smashed to pieces and either burned up in the Martian atmosphere or skipped off into heliocentric space. The remains of its intricate, carefully designed components forming just so many tiny satellites of the Sun, lost forever. In a complex machine like a space probe, hundreds of thousands of components and processes have to work perfectly to achieve a successful result. Years of planning by some of the most intelligent people, backed by the budget of the world's largest economy, were behind this mission. Troubleshooting every outcome, considering every eventuality. But the error, as is so often the case, was human. A system supplied by an industry partner was supplying data in imperial units, while the NASA system it was communicated with expected SI units. Specifically, the thruster impulse was being provided in pound-seconds, while it was expected in newton-seconds, out by a factor of 4.5. This miscalculation was fatal for the craft. It often doesn't matter how many problems you catch. If that one new miss is major enough, it makes all of the others academic. NASA said later that it should have checked the figures were matching what was expected. But the answer was likely somewhere lost in the documentation, buried in some dark corner of a PDF. Coming back to Earth, what if we examine the most complicated machine we know of? The Mars Climate Orbiter was designed from scratch and self-contained. But what if we look at a city, with its chaos of interacting utilities and structures, overlapping industries and interests, blurred boundaries and ceaseless change? A city built on top of itself, going back to a time before history. What if we look at London? Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we have partnered with Atkins to look at a system that will allow us for the first time to make planning decisions while fully aware of everything that will be involved. It will put the impacts of planning decisions in front of planners. The data that underpins our built environment will be unlocked and we'll be able to assess capacity, define needs and even the oldest assets dating back centuries will be transparent and understood. This system could be considered a digital twin or perhaps it's better to think of it as a system of systems. A digital twin of the planning process itself a policy response to the rise of the digital twin. To understand this, we will speak to the Head of Change and Delivery at the Greater London Authority. But first, we need to take a step back and understand what the digital twin is to the built environment. I'm Neil Thompson. Uh, I'm currently seconded to the Centre for Digital Britain as the programme lead for the Construction Innovation Hub programme. The day job is I work with Atkins and I am the director for digital construction. Neil sees his job as both creating a new way of designing and building critical national infrastructure, but also helping other organisations move forward with their own digital journey. 
Most of his time is spent on his work at the Centre for Digital Built Britain, a joint venture between the University of Cambridge and Bayes, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. They have been working on, you know, we've got the, the government's BIM agenda and that's sort of where its origin comes from, the, the original task group for uh, enabling UK government to procure data uh, and now moved into the much broader space of digital twinning, you know, connect, connecting infrastructure to the internet and, you know, being able to connect interoperable data together. And that's really the mission of the Centre for Digital Built Britain, or CDBB. And Neil is also the co-host of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. This is run by a team of professional enthusiasts who interview key figures in the digital twin space. A really wide-ranging group of people, right up to the guy who came up with the original idea, Michael Greaves. We will link to their podcast in the show notes. (laughs) You want them to send you a free t-shirt, don't you? Yes, uh, a men's medium. But the podcast is interesting for anyone who wants to take a deeper dive into the cutting edge and the future of digital construction or manufacturing. And Neil is the perfect man to explain the digital twin to us. Many listeners by now know that it is a digital representation of something in the real world. But Neil sees the linking of twins as an extension of the internet in a very real sense. With the internet... You know, we, we, we began and there's, we call it the, the different sort of tiers of the platform. So the first platform was connecting, you know, thousands of applications and millions of people together via mainframe computers. So the earliest form of the internet was connecting these big, chunky computers together, mostly in sort of government research and corporate environments. Then as the internet progressed, it started to think about, well, instead of connecting mainframes computers together, can we connect smaller computers together, so PCs together? This kicked off a process of creating the World Wide Web, connecting documents together, giving it a more human touch as we know it today. And so that gets us into sort of the hundreds of millions of people and tens of thousands of applications being pulled together. What we've seen in more recent times is that, that medium moving from personal computers into mobiles. So mobile phones has enabled us to connect billions of people together on the internet. And we've got millions of apps out there that enable lots of different types of services. And we've seen you know, the banking sector transform, media transform. We've got uh, media in the sense of music, media in the sense of publication and TV. You know, we look at YouTube and Netflix, for example, it's, and, and you know, SoundCloud and podcasts and all, all, all that type of stuff. This is known as the third platform for the internet. What I'm talking about here is a proposed fourth platform for the internet, which is starts off as a little bit of little bit from the Internet of Things. So the Internet of Things is where we've, you know, as we've seen, the connection of consumer products to the internet, so light switches, fridges, and certain t- types of environmental controls for for buildings. But this is sort of the next step. So the next step for me for the what I call the extensibility of the internet is moving that into the built environment. You know, we're going beyond connecting things to connecting the environment. So, you know, on the on the first floor of the internet we were connecting millions of people and thousands of apps and we've worked up into connecting trillions of things and connecting quadrillions of connections and of, of data and what have you. This internet of twins is the eventual result. We've seen it coming for a while, but there has been a convergence of technologies, advances in a number of fields that means this has only been possible in the last five years or so. 
the brute force computation of cloud computing, for example. But even so, construction has been slow compared to other sectors. And in many ways, it still uses computers as a way to augment the paper process, sticking its toe in the shallow end of what the digital world has to offer instead of diving in. And we know that human opinions do not necessarily give us good outcomes. And it is desirable to use machines and data to support our decision making. Although, as Neil points out, it is not necessarily fair to look at other fields and compare construction with them. Putting books on the internet is slightly different to putting, uh, you know, wastewater treatment works on, on the internet. So there's, I think there's an appropriate time frame, but I think twins are here today. Let's not get caught up on what, what a twin is, but let's just think about some of the things that you need to do in order to make a better quality decision. There are challenges with construction. And sharing data is all very well and good, but so much of the information is from a pre-digital age. What we see most in the projects that I get involved with is how do you, you know, we've got lots of existing infrastructure. You know, I mean, this stuff's from Victorian times and it's been sort of slowly retrofitted with new technologies uh, and, and what have you in terms of, when I, when I say new technologies, physical ones, new types of new types of pumps, new types of filtration systems and detection systems and sensors and what have you. It's sort of boiling down to two main areas. It's the how far do you go with the digitalization of the past? How far do you go down of understanding what the asset performance and condition is right now? So there's, there's a time horizon. I mean, how much of collecting the historical data of a road is of use to you? and how much of understanding as much about that road right here and now is of use to you. This information, and information of all sorts of assets in the built environment, is currently an incredibly obscure environment, but is currently being looked at by planners. The processes in this space are more than ready for updating. The planning system is a very interesting place that is untapped from our implementation of information management BIM and TWINS perspective because you know it's it's based upon processes and technologies that were put together in the in the in the 50s and if we think about the gateway into improving our local infrastructure the planning system's a key thing to to interface with it, it's incredibly influential but in terms of one purely managing that process in terms of approving and not approving and testing the equality of proposals from developers and private individuals and the government and what have you as a very difficult um, and still a very manual process implementing automation into that to you know for example checking the square meterage of rooms to check they are of the appropriate size that circulation spaces and escape routes are, are appropriately designed and all those types of things are still very heavily manual processes in terms of the the the, the broader aspect of that is about it's it, it, it's about implementing policy decisions from a local government perspective so it's also the if someone's going to build a block of flats in a certain area that has a relative impact in terms of the demand on the services in that area and being able to make decisions about how these things impact other pieces of infrastructure so let's look at the city Hello, I'm Peter Kemp. I'm the Head of Change and Delivery at the Greater London Authority in the planning team. I possibly do one of the most interesting jobs in that I get involved in day-to-day -day kind of managing the, the process of the planning system for the Mayor of London, 
But also, even more importantly, um, I look after lots of data projects on behalf of, of the Mayor of London and joining together a lot of the work of all the planning authorities across London to centralise data and information. Peter is currently working on the Planning London Data Hub, or PLD. Planning Data Hub is actually a database of planning applications. So rather than it being the constraint information that you take into account during the determination of an application, it's actually the data about the developments proposed in an application. So let's just say, for example, at the moment, if you were trying to find out, um, if, if you live next to a site where there, there's a planning application for more than one or two buildings, you would struggle to find a collective set of data about that development proposal, let alone how that cumulatively adds to all of the other developments that are ha happening around you. And there's a number of reasons for that. Predominantly going back to how the planning acts are set up, they are very individual application led. But secondly, the way that the data is received in planning applications didn't make it very accessible. The data was often hidden deep inside PDF documents. And so the planning data hub actually unlocks that data and puts it in a format that enables you to interrogate it and to drill down through it to look to cut the data in different ways so you could look at individual applications or you could look at numerous applications together within an area and the logic behind it is it enables better monitoring but also far more strategic oversight of development happening across a wider area where, where that you might take into account in developing policy but you also might take into account when considering other applications. This is really significant. Up to this point, data has been locked away, inaccessible except for those with specific knowledge and the time or financial imperative to actually look through the mountains of documents. There's numerous other uses for this data set because the private sector often have to produce data sets and that's in both in the preparation of planning policy, but also in preparing development proposals. Infrastructure providers struggle to access data about where future development proposals are and the scale of them. And also transport. So to name just a few use cases where they're desperate for this data set. So whilst we're using it at the moment with the local planning authorities, over the coming weeks it will be rolled to all of the other users that are, are waiting for this data set to be available to them. Okay, so what about transport? What could it do for that sector? They might use it to assess the capacity of existing transport infrastructure and define what additional infrastructure might be needed. So say, for example, if we're granting consent for 500 more units, but across 20 different sites in an area, it might need require the increase in frequency of buses. Or it might heaven's forbid increase require the increases in frequency of trains but, but you get the important point because it enables people to model existing capacity and future capacity and future capacity at different points in time there's a nice example here from one of the kickoff discoveries we ran for the project this is will squires he works for atkins as associate director for digital he has focused his career on cities and infrastructure and is the project lead for the delivery of the pld Basically, his team designed, built, and deployed the technology platform for the Greater London Authority. 
where a major utility provider's sort of head of forward planning was there. And speaking to him, he made the comment that utilities are required as part of their regulatory commitment to forecast within 2% the, the capacity they expect to supply to an area. And largely for utility companies that's driven by the number of homes. He said that they have to be able to predict, I think, 10 to 15 years in the future, and they're expected to be in within a really, really tight margin of error. But actually, during the period... A period of 20 years. There have been 17 different housing ministers with different levels of authority and different ideas for how and where homes should be built. So if you take this idea of 17 different housing mirrors over the same time period, you're meant to deliver it within two or three percent, this sort of fixed idea of what's going to be built where and how am I going to supply it. You start to see how the present system that relies on paper and documentation and deeply codified technical knowledge begins to fall down. And you can start to imagine how clearer access to that information and the ability to pull that information and often do different things with it. So bringing it into a utility company's corporate systems and allowing it to compare them against their capacity and improvement plans or take it to the regulator is a nice use case that sits outside the more sort of close to home example of a citizen wanting to know what's going to be built on the site opposite from them. Under the present system, the planners were collecting and codifying information from just 8% of planning applications that were submitted. The swathes of information were just too vast. And between the 32 boroughs of London, each with their own technology, process requirements and data formats, comparing between areas was impossible without a lot of time spent manually validating different sets of data. In short, the various subtleties and requirements across boundaries meant that the planners have been working to an impossible task. When you're a public body trying to make decisions, the burden of processing that information to allow you to dig through all the documents and have summary statistics is quite, is quite a significant burden. There are a lot of companies who act in this space who effectively um, scrape or read documentation and provide a, a measurable fraction of, of what PLD will provide. But there's also this point here that a lot of um, remarks and theories and ideas about particularly the housing industry are often very hard to quantify. You can read it in any newspaper in the country, you know, we were meant to deliver this home, this number of homes, we delivered this number of homes. Planning is quite complex. The first step is building the initial infrastructure to bring this data to the fore. What Will describes as getting the plumbing right. But then what could this data allow us to do to model air quality? What could this data allow us to do to understand the case for building a new pocket park somewhere in a way that is much more repeatable, is much, it allows us to make better decisions because the burden of collecting that evidence is much lower. So we can spend more of our time on thinking about good things to do as opposed to acquiring data to understand if those good things are good. Peter says that the underpinning principle of this is having an undisputable baseline of facts. By having this data set, you have a level of facts. So everybody can say that that's a fact because it's collected in a, a clean, robust manner. Whereas the planning system often relies a lot on individuals' research and opinions at the moment. And we're hopeful that a project like this 
will enable us to move to a space where the, the planning industry can operate based on a, a shared evidence base and as such a series of facts to start the discussion. Now that in, in, in the long term, for me professionally, would speed up the planning system because it will speed up the delivery because for the, as Will points out, for the first time you can actually very cleanly identify where, where the true lags in the process are. We, we often get a lot of criticism in the press um, and you get a lot of criticism in, in all stages of the planning system. The planning system is a bureaucratic system and is slowing the world down. Well, actually, this might unlock that discussion a bit further. Not least because Peter is a strong believer in bureaucracy and knows that it saves lives. Now, to move on from, from that, once you have a shared evidence base and you can all identify where the lags in the process are, in theory, the process can speed up or you can reduce the cost of actually delivering the system. So say for, say for, for example, operating a version of a digital twin like this might enable us to reduce the cost of getting developing development sites forwards, which means that we've got more money to spend for affordable housing. Or it might mean that we can identify the sites that are more viable to bring forwards and bring those forwards faster whereas very quickly identify the sites where viability is going to be a bigger challenge because we can actually look at the data that's here and readily available. What can be done with the PLD depends ultimately on smarter, younger minds than ours. Here's Will. It will soon be open to a broader public, including the, the disruptive tech providers in that space as well. So any list of small startups or research academics can start to play with it. I was having a conversation with my alma mater at the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL about how we can get four or five students playing with this, because ultimately that's the sort of thing I dreamed about when I was there. How could I have a really great data set that described the entire city and its planning functions? And my old um, head of department, uh, who kindly tolerates me as an honorary research associate, is, is sort of exploding with excitement at the moment. So thinking about like, you're, Academics are keen to get their hands on this because who knows what you're going to find in there. You know, Peter and I can hypothesize a little bit, but I'm really, really looking forward to being comprehensively bamboozled by what somebody cleverer than I do does with it. Peter thinks that an early realization might be one of horror. The moment that we realize what misconceptions we have been working under all this time. But actually, I think that that cleverer than, than, than me and you routine is, is actually slightly more interesting because they're going to find that firstly the data quality in the planning and development industry in general is quite shocking so the work they'll do will probably identify um, whether accidentally or negligently or recklessly some data is supplied is just wrong and that data has been relied upon at different times over the years um, to make decisions. So that's going to be quite interesting. But then secondly, they'll have some quite detailed and different insights into how the city is changing and whether that's going to have a more profound effect on whether policy becomes more dynamic and whether we or, or whether policy can get less dynamic because we're seeing trends that will enable us to get that bigger insights. Um, so say, for example, the housing number conversation, we're going to have it on a screen in, in the reception to City Hall. 
will know how many schemes have got consent, how many of them are being built out at any time. And so that will take away a lot of these suggestions of under or over supply of housing because you can see instantly the figures. So it might just move the conversation on. And further than this, Will says that there will be less flexibility for less than honest interpretation of the rules. Every six months in the media, we get a an example of a, a building that's been planning approved with, you know, five metre boxes and, and everybody's up in outroar. That there was some brilliant work done by um, Jack Ricketts at Southwark and Alastair Parvin from Open Systems Lab about this creating this policy of uh, this concept of policy as code. And this might be so. Let's let's step you know six months into the future, perhaps with PLD. Um, a developer submits their application and they're forced to list the the square meterage of the um, the units they're proposing. And I believe the mayor's minimum uh, size for a new development for a one bedroom property is about 35 square meters. And this developer thinks, oh, I'm going to shove through you know, a 10 square meter room. Now, in this wonderful version of the future with policy written of code, uh, we get to go back to that little Britain schedule that's probably very dated now, and we just get, computer says no. Because the policy is, you have to follow this rule. Little Britain was a comedy sketch show in the UK a few years ago. It featured an unsympathetic computer operator inputting a customer's request, then responding with a deadpan, computer says no. Back to the PLD, and on the risks attached to it, Peter highlights the cold, hard reality of data and fact. There's lots of risks attached to this, as whenever you release data that wasn't previously available, some of the obvious ones are around politics. What if this data set creates a narrative that's different to ones that our political leaders have previously used? A second one is uh, around um, accountability. Making an open data set by virtue of its existence means that residents can access it. And residents may hold us as professionals accountable for the change that's happening or not happening as a result. And then the third, kind of just as a, as a practical piece, there's a massive data ethics risk, because when you make data available, um, that whilst it's not personal data, is data that may have an impact on people's lives, or may enable you to interpret what's happening in someone's life, there's some, some really strong ethical questions about its availability. So we've been, we've been carefully managing that journey throughout the project to try and understand where the risks attached to each of those stands. And there are a number of other risks, but you can kind of imagine, heavens forbid, a scenario where one borough suddenly discovers as a result of this data set the floor space they're creating for residential extensions within their borough, which is a data set that's never existed anywhere before, is having such a significant impact that they need to worry about their infrastructure, their school capacity, their hospital capacity, and all of those things that suddenly become quite terrifying. So there's all sorts of questions around accountability there as well. Peter and the GLA have taken a robust approach to this, firstly by not pulling any personal data, and secondly, by consulting with data ethics specialists in academia. This is a new world and warrants caution, 
but it seems that the most sensitive data is already out there, and that is not being shared anew. We started this episode with a plan to talk about digital twins, and we may have strayed a little bit, depending on your definition. And there are a huge amount of definitions. Largely, they relate to the provision of information from the built environment, an asset, an object, something that allows you to make better decisions. Now, if we think of the planning system as ultimately the change control process for the built environment in this country, we have to have some sort of digital version of that. Now, by its nature, is it a twin? Is it, is it a system? Is it a governance procedure? It's almost the policy response to a digital twin. How, how do you plan in a world where you have digital twins? Now, if we think of the earliest stage of a project, when we are thinking about planning, what are we doing? How are we thinking about it? What is the information we're using that plugs into it? The provision of all of that information we get from the twin of the planning and design into the planning system lets us plan a better city, a better country. We can actually consider the cumulative impacts of all of this. And this is, this is very similar to the use cases for digital twins for a lot of organizations. There's, a, there's an immediate benefit in, can I build and operate my railway cheaper? You know, that bit's kind of become obvious. It's kind of the, yes, if I knew all the information about it, I can maintain it more quickly or I can, I can design more effectively or copy paste design from other areas. But it's when you start to think about the space between the gaps that it gets a little more interesting. One example that's in circulation at the moment is the Grenfell story. This was a high-rise residential tower that caught fire in London in 2017. 72 people lost their lives in the worst residential fire since the Second World War. A key part of the tragedy was the cladding of the building, which has subsequently been found to be not fire-resistant enough. The country was distraught, and the public outcry has led to large sums of money being spent in inquiry, with the government trying to understand what the effect of policy change around flammable cladding will be on many other structures around the country. Now, the planning system could capture that sort of information, what was agreed and consented, because actually you should be deciding and complying with all of those policies when you achieve planning. So if we think about this relationship between we plan things, we then watch them build, we then check how they're used, connecting that information, allowing it to be used in a variety of different use cases outside of that original organisation is really important. And it responds to a lot of the sort of checks and balances that surround the asset industries and asset owners and construction industry, their regulators and how they provision information to them through a digital twin or otherwise. The citizens that use that asset or a piece of information and subsequently need information from its digital twin. Ultimately, nothing exists in isolation, especially in a city. A railway does not exist in isolation from the towns it serves. A new use development doesn't exist in isolation from the other buildings that sit around it. And that's in everything from power draw it exerts on the network to the fact that two new coffee shops might take business off the one down the road. These are all the system complexity problems that connected digital twins start to allow us to solve. 
And that's where I get really excited about it. It's this opportunity of asking questions between the gaps, just as much as the opportunity to revolutionize how we deliver the next railway of tomorrow and the power plant of three years down the line. It's, it's that opportunity to ask the bigger questions, the sort of societal questions, the economic questions that often as engineers working on a specific thing we aren't thinking of, but surfacing that information is really, really critical to allowing us to do that. In the end, this isn't a story about an underlying technology. It's about how systems shift and shape around them. People get very excited about the all-new technology, the 3D, 4D, 5D, 6D, 7D model. But it's actually about what that model allows you to do differently. There's an example on the National Underground Asset Register project that we're working on about, uh, and this is a project that seeks to connect all of the underground asset networks of the country together so that when people are out digging for your pipes outside your house, uh, they don't hit a, a hidden gas main. Now, there's a big part about data and technology to all of that. There's also a big part about what does that do to the business process of the guy on site? He's not looking at paper anymore. He's looking at a piece of technology. How does that change the sort of skills you need in that workforce? The sort of people who will work on these projects, the sort of things these will look at and maybe find exciting. The, the impact of what you use the digital twin for and how it affects the world of today is often the most important part of this. And the Planning London Data Hub is a nice example of this. We're, we're talking about rewiring a system that has been defined through legislation through the decades, but hasn't really realized the benefit of modern technology. And this is the exact same case with the National Underground Asset Register project. The, the, the men and women who are outside conducting works on pipes outside your home are not necessarily harnessing the latest and greatest technology. It's how we change these processes that affect the built environment through the medium of digital twins that excites me. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Konica, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rhea Owen, Ross McPherson, Velo Mitrovic, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own unforeseen consequence is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Atkins, the Centre for Digital Built Britain, the Greater London Authority, and the Digital Twin Fan Club. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.